This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Johannes Malros, co-founder of Relex Solutions, a supply chain and retail planning platform that's raised over $700 million in funding. Johanna, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. I'm super excited for this conversation. I'd love to begin with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Well, my journey so far has basically been a series of random, unplanned events. So... When I was younger, I wasn't really that into technology, but somehow I still ended up studying engineering. That was mainly because my brother had followed our dad's footsteps and studied electrical engineering at Helsinki University of Technology. And he sold me in on the idea of applying to the program of industrial engineering and management, which he portrayed as being less technical. And that's how I ended up doing a master's in engineering. And the next, the kind of other somewhat pivotal moment was when I got a summer internship in a research group led by our professor of of logistics. And um, somehow, you know, I had never planned to go into research, but then uh, I did my internship. I ended up doing my master's thesis for the research group. I ended up writing a couple of research papers and suddenly I was kind of halfway through doing a doctoral degree. So then it kind of made sense to to do a PhD in supply chain management. And then I met my two co-founders in the same research group. And uh, when myself and our CEO, Mikko, finalized our dissertations at pretty much the same point in time, we started thinking about, well, maybe we should take some of these, well, according to us, brilliant research ideas and see if we could actually implement them in practice. And that's how I become an entrepreneur, completely unplanned. And that's what I've been doing for 15 plus years now. Can you tell us about the tech ecosystem in Finland back in 2006 when you were founding the company? What was it like then? And, and what's it like today? How have you seen it evolve? Finland has uh, kind of a proud engineering culture. So we are great at building things. So companies like Wärtsilä and Kone, the, you know, huge elevator company. And then, of course, Nokia was a big thing back in the day. But they didn't really have a startup scene back in the day. So when we decided to become entrepreneurs, it was kind of a slightly weird choice. So most of the people I studied with went on to either work for Nokia or into one of the big consultancies. So it was a bit like, why are you doing this? Can't you get a real job when uh, we decided to start our own company? Now it's completely different. There's a very vibrant startup community in in Finland nowadays. And of course, there's been several success stories with, for example, Smartly or Supercell and and, and so on. So there's um, a whole ecosystem that really wasn't there back in the day. And I know you just touched on that, but from my conversations with other founders in Finland, it, it really does seem like you're attracted to 
hard problems, you know, with, with hardware, like the, the company that comes to mind for me is Aura Rings. I think that's a Finnish company as well. You know, that's, that's a hard problem that they're solving. I think in a lot of different countries and just a lot of different places, they go after, I would say, you know, easier problems, you know, software problems or, or different things like that. Why is Finland obsessed with tackling these, you know, hard problems, do you think? It's a very hard question. I don't think anyone has the answer, but it seems that it's somehow programmed into our DNA that we really want to build things, complex, difficult things. And then there's the kind of forever joke that the Swedes are great at marketing and the Finns are great at building things. And um, maybe there's, uh, you know, some element of truth to them, but I also think that Finns have stepped up their marketing game a bit uh, over the years. Something else, and you know, we were talking about this in the pre-interview. So I was in in Finland earlier this year. I, I had just a, a fantastic time, beautiful country, amazing people. And when I was going there, one article I read was talking about how Finland was named the happiest country on earth, or it had the happiest people on earth. And I asked everyone I met in Finland, hey, are you happy? Why are you happy? And I, I got some really interesting insights. What are your views there? Is Finland the happiest place on earth or the Finnish people the happiest people on earth? Well, I guess you got this answer from pretty many Finns, but, but the study is actually a bit mislabeled. I think what it actually measures is not how, you know, I feel great happy people are, but rather how well-functioning the society is. And that's, I think, something that works really well in Finland, that there's a high level of trust across the board. People trust each other, people um, trust the authorities, the institutions, and that actually makes things in many ways quite a lot easier when you can kind of assume goodwill rather than than be on your guard all the time. Mm, that makes more sense. Now, let's switch gears here and let's talk a little bit about some of your inspirations. So, When it comes to inspirations for you, is there a specific founder or an entrepreneur that you've really been inspired by? I can't really say that there would be a founder I admire, apart, of course, from our own CEO, Mikko, whom I've seen make really hard decisions with integrity. So my view is that not to really kind of admire or get inspired by people you need to see beyond their achievements. So it's easy to admire achievements, but without actually knowing the person and, and how they've acted in different circumstances, I'm a bit reluctant to get inspired. I also, as a founder, I know that it's never just that one person. It's always several people and kind of at least a core team that really makes the difference. So, um, I have to say that I'm going to be a bit boring on this one and not name anyone. <laughs> no worries at all. You have to name something for the next question, though. And the next question is about books. So there's an author in the U.S. named Ryan Holiday, and he calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that rocks you to your core, that really influences how you think about the world and, and how you approach life. Do you have any quick books that come to mind? Yeah, I have a sense that, that you're looking for a management or leadership book. I read all the classics, of course, and, you know, you get some good information and tips from those. But, but I really feel that that they would be like quake worthy experiences. So I, I my go to is fiction. And um, I actually think that reading a lot of fiction is a great way to kind of 
peek inside other people's thinking, which is a great skill to have when you try to get people to work together in a very productive way. And it's, of course, impossible to pick just one book. There's so many good books. But if I can pick a recent one, last week I finished The End of Eddie by Edouard Louis, a French author, and that was a super powerful read. So it was kind of a combination of brutal honesty and empathy, or maybe understanding without making excuses, if that makes sense, and kind of really offered an opportunity to experience a life that I would never live and uh, understand what impact that would have on you as a person. That's awesome. I've not read that book yet, but I'll, I'll add it to my list. That sounds like a fascinating read. Let's switch gears now and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So how we like to start this portion of the interview is really talking about the problem. So what problem does Relex solve? Yeah. So if you start with the product category, we talk about supply chain and retail planning. And the key here is helping retailers, distributors, manufacturers. So basically the whole consumer goods value chain do a few key things. So maximize customer satisfaction and minimize operational cost. And we do this by bringing together demand planning, commercial planning. So for example, what promotions you're going to run, supply chain planning and operational execution on one platform. So the whole idea is to connect these previously quite siloed planning processes to maximize the business impact. Can you take us back to the early days, 2006, when you were starting the company? What were those early conversations like? And, and what was it about this problem that made you say, okay, I'm going to go dedicate the next 15 plus years of my life to, to really solving this problem? Yeah, so as, as mentioned, all three of us co-founders uh, used to work in the same research group at Helsinki University of Technology. And uh, as researchers, we looked at actually quite a lot of different ways to increase efficiency in the consumer goods supply chain. So one area, for example, that we were looking at was automating store forecasting and replenishment ordering, but also, for example, how efficiency could be increased by having retailers and suppliers collaborate better on supply chain planning. But we realized that research is super interesting. It's intellectually challenging, but it's also very, very slow. So an immensely slow way to change the world. So we felt that you know, when we had finalized our dissertations and, and, and could start looking forward, we felt that mm, maybe this isn't, you know, research maybe isn't the right vehicle to actually build the new things and change the world. So we looked at each other and, and decided that maybe we should take some of these ideas and see if we can build them, make them happen. And then that would allow us to further improve on them instead of waiting for maybe someone someday to pick up on those thoughts that we had uh, published. So basically, we just wanted to see if our ideas really worked as well as we thought they would. 
And uh, we're still on that journey because the ideas still keep coming. Early on, did you have any resistance? Did you have any people from the industry just saying, you know, what do these researchers know? How are they going to build a company to solve my problems? Did you have any resistance like that in those early days? No, not resistance per se. Maybe um, I think, you know, we entered a crowded space. Supply chains have been around forever. Supply chain planning has been around forever. There's lots of tools out there. So I think in the early days, some of our competitors definitely didn't take us very seriously. But then on the client side, I think they were probably, in many cases, positively surprised because uh, we did get comments like, ooh, you, you seem surprisingly practical being a doctor and everything. So I do think there was a bit of uh, prejudice on coming from the academic side. What about those first early paying customers? Can you remember back to you know what those deals were like and, and how you managed to convince people to give you money? The reason I ask is every early stage startup that I've spoken to, they struggle with that. It's hard to get a company to trust you to solve their problems when you're a new technology startup, when you're a new entrepreneur. So what was it like landing those first paying customers? Yeah, so first of all, it required quite a bit of footwork. So just reaching out to a lot of people and, and seeing if we could get the opportunity to actually speak with them. And then when we got the opportunity, I think we really benefited from having a solid understanding of their business pains and you know how their business works and also be able to really clearly articulate how we could address those pain points and, and, and solve their problems. And then finally, we also realized that it's, it's quite a lot to ask to rely on a new startup to run mission-critical processes. So for example, store replenishment is a thing that just has to work. Otherwise, the whole supply chain falls apart. So asking retailers to trust us to run these processes, devise the business model to take out as much risk as possible. And we actually use many of these elements still today. One key thing was to be able to prove the business case based on actual client data before we implemented anything. So basically, we just draw out whatever they can send us, transactions, uh, master data, and so on, and just show them what it would look like if they were using Relax to optimize their goods flows. And secondly, we did a lot of piloting and oftentimes with money-back guarantees. So they could jump off at any time if they wanted to. And we also offer them to pay back the implementation cost if it came to that. But no one ever wanted their money back. So that was uh, a good deal for us. How did you approach expansion in the early days? Did you spend a lot of time and energy just focused on really dominating Finland and then expand it out from there country by country? Or what was that expansion strategy like? Well, um, we did spend the first couple of years focusing only on Finland. And that was basically because every client we landed was kind of an R&D project in itself. So it's kind of a blessing and a curse starting out from Finland because it's a tiny market. 
And that meant that we couldn't really be like super niched and only work with a specific type of retail, for example. So I think our first client was probably consumer electronics, and then it was an agricultural retailer and then a chain of bookstores and then tire distribution. So very different types of clients with um, quite different pain points. So for example, seasonality is huge in books and in tires. And then for consumer electronics, it's short life cycles. And that actually applies to books as well. So we spent the first couple of years really kind of building the product and making it flexible enough to accommodate these all types of different needs that that we discovered uh, in the client base. And only when we felt that now we have kind of a solid product, we started expanding and we took the kind of path of least resistance and expanded in the Nordics first. And uh, myself, I'm Swedish speaking, so I kind of um, looked around and didn't see much happening. So I picked up the phone and started cold calling the Swedes to see if we can sell this solution anywhere outside of Finland. And then we got the Nordics going and then we entered Germany because it's a huge market. And the UK, because that's where we knew we were going to meet all the US competitors, just to really test if there is a market for our solution. And then uh, we actually bootstrapped for the first 10 years, which is somewhat unusual, I think, and uh, raised funding only when we had decided to enter the US market, which we knew was going to be somewhat costly and uh, required a bit more ammunition than that we could generate just from cash flow. Yeah, so that's how we went about it. Was that a hard decision to make to go from being a bootstrap business to to going down the venture capital route after you know making it ten years and succeeding for ten years? Was that a difficult decision to make? No, it was actually a surprisingly quick decision. We had a management offsite. And we sat there discussing what we want Relax to be. And then we concluded that we want to be best in the world in, you know, whatever we do, basically. And then the logical conclusion was that we can't really be the best in the world if we are only available in Europe. So then we need to go to the U.S. And then we actually just started plotting like, how much time of preparation will it require? How much money will that require? And then we started executing on that plan. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. And I see that you were CMO from, I believe it was 2016 till just recently this year. How would you describe the the marketing philosophy that you brought to the company and your your general strategy when it comes to how you approach marketing? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, kind of a weird marketer. Uh, having a background in engineering. So I think my key contribution to our marketing has been the 
understanding of client pain points and what our solutions can do. My kind of blind spot is hyping. I'm really bad at hyping things. I have a strong dislike of hyping things. And that's actually one reason why why we now have a real marketing person as a CMO. I felt that I have given all I can give in that area. And uh, now we need someone to take it to the next level. Makes sense. And that's probably, uh, of all things to be good at, that's probably a good thing to be good at, right? Or to yeah, <laughs> yeah. hype. I think there's a lot of marketers and just a lot of companies in general where once you get past everything, it's it's all hype. There's nothing there. So that's probably good that you're not uh, not the best at hype. <laughs> yeah, it comes with some good things and some bad things. And sometimes I probably also, I don't think, I don't expect our new CMO to hype. But I do think that we can do a better job of having simpler messages and broader reach, to be honest. When it comes to the scale that you're operating at today, are there any numbers and just metrics that you can share so our audience can really understand just how big and massive your operation is? Well, I think the um, kind of most impressive fact is that we work with some of the globally largest retailers in the world, like the top 10 of retailers, like the Home Depot, Lidl, and uh, Ahol Deliers in the US. So those companies are very, very picky with regards to whom they choose to work with. And they, of course, also have massive volumes, which really makes it important for them to make the right decisions when it comes to technology. But If you want a number to kind of illustrate the scale, I did some quick math in my head. And um, on a total level, uh, we helped plan more than a thousand billion worth of consumer goods flows. So that's that's a big number. Wow. That is a big number. (laughs) It's a lot of zeros there. Yes. It's a number that probably has a name, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, supposed to be gold, so we'll go with a thousand billion. But also, <laughs> we, we work a lot with, with food retailers, distributors, and manufacturers, both because it really drives a huge business case to be able to plan those flows properly. It's hard to manage just by adding inventory because then you'll have a lot of waste. So we really need to be super accurate when working with groceries. And that is super exciting because it also has a massive sustainability angle. So we've been able to take out up to 40% of retailers' food waste. And that's something that's very, very important nowadays when uh, sustainability and, and you know global warming are key topics because the food supply chain is actually quite important to mitigating climate change. So we are contributing quite a bit to that at the same time as we're saving a lot of money. I saw online that you had set up a 100 million euro charity as well to try to battle climate change. Is is that correct? Yes. So it's actually separate from Relax, although it shares the same name. It's called the Relax Foundation. Myself and my two co-founders, along with one of our long time employees slash owners set it up because um, 
you know, when a startup turns into a scale-up and, and turns into a successful business, it also generates wealth. And for us, making money for ourselves was never the key goal of this whole thing. It was more about building cool things and seeing if we can actually improve things, you know, get results together with our clients. So the financial outcome is kind of an added bonus. And we felt like, well, why wait to, you know, put this money to good use? So we decided to start the foundation already now. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do some good things through the foundation. And I think I read it was what, a $10 million cash injection, and then it was 100 million euros of company stock. Is that correct? Yes. And, and here the thinking is also because um, our employees are really keen on sustainability topics. It's something that is very important for many who have chosen to work with Relax. So we also feel that it's a great way to kind of make their work even more meaningful. So if we can make sure that Relax continues to grow and be successful, then the foundation will also grow and be able to do more things. That's amazing. And I, I really admire that you're doing that. I feel like a lot of companies out there, they just talk about sustainability and they talk about climate change, but they're not necessarily like doing anything that's going to really move the needle. But 10 million euro cash injection and 100 million euro stock, that's big and that's that's meaningful and that's going to really have an impact. So I really admire and respect founders who you know, put their money where their mouth is and, and really invest in these urgent global issues that we're facing. Yeah, thank you. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the intention when you were starting the company. And I, I know you touched on that there, that money was never the objective and, and making money for yourself was never the objective. But in the early days, did you have this vision that it was going to be the scale that it's operating at today? Did you think it was going to be a unicorn? Did you think it would be you know, achieving the level of revenue and the growth that you're at today? Or is all of this a surprise for you? It's kind of yes and no. So in the beginning, I think our planning horizon was maybe five years ahead. And uh, we had uh, some plans and we actually managed to hit those plans, although we felt that they were maybe a bit aggressive. But from that point onwards, I think we were kind of quite convinced that we can do this at a global scale. And uh, we felt that we had such a competitive edge that it would be a shame not to do this on global scale. But yeah, what really excites us is to see the results that we managed to, to help our clients achieve. And that's really, you know, what makes it cool for me to come to work still today and, you know, just feel that, ooh, we managed to do this, but, you know, how cool would it be if we could do this as well? Makes a lot of sense and, and super fascinating there. Now, let's talk a little bit about fundraising. So as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over $700 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey and throughout this process? Yeah, so as mentioned, we bootstrapped for 10 years, which means that, that when we were 
fundraising the first time, we already had kind of a track record of growth and, you know, unit economics and execution in general. So we kind of skipped the phase when you just need to, you know, convince people that this will be something someday. So we were rather showing numbers and proof points. So it wasn't it wasn't a huge deal to raise funding. We were on the radar of many investors at that point. So when we decided that this is the right time, we were in a very privileged position to be able to kind of pick and choose which investors we wanted to explore this opportunity together with. And we did have some listed criteria that we had decided internally that, you know, what is important to us when we choose the right investor. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Yeah, it would be lovely to go back with all the right answers, make the right calls, skip the wrong ones, and then just do everything a lot faster and with less frustration. But unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. I think the key thing I've realized only later on is that it's quite unusual that, you know, 15 plus years into the game, the kind of co-founders or the core team that founded the company still work every day in operational roles and enjoy it and want to do it. So I made the right call back in the day, but I didn't think too much about it. But I do think that it really makes sense to go into business with people who share the same set of values, basically. Because that leads to a situation where you can really trust the other co-founders to make the right calls when you are not in the room and you don't need to be in that room. You can trust them to really do the right thing when it comes to, for example, hard decisions that are going to test your integrity. If you have the same kind of value compass, you know that they're not going to take the shortcut maybe the easy way if that conflicts with how how you see that things should be done. So I think that's actually been super valuable. I kind of accidentally got it right. But if I were to start a company again, that's something I would actually explore quite a lot to make sure that that, you know, we share the same same values, the same thinking about right and wrong and how you treat people. Outside of value alignment, if we reflect on the success that you've achieved, what do you think you've gotten right? I'm sure there's a long list of things you've gotten right, probably a few things you've gotten wrong, but what are some of those you know, really big things that you think you can attribute to the success that you've achieved? Yeah, I'd say that despite us being a technology company, we've always started from our clients' business problems and aim to find the best opportunities to kind of really move the needle. And then we found the technology to make this happen. So we've basically fallen in love with the problems and uh, not the technology. And that's something that's been quite valuable. And it's reflected in us having really high customer satisfaction. And customers, our client base has actually been our greatest marketing asset throughout this journey. 
So I'm really grateful to all the clients to, who have, you know, shared their experiences. We've done case studies, they have delivered presentations and quite, you know, openly shared the results they've attained and how they've done it. And they've done tons of reference calls when, when somebody has been looking for systems. So that, that's really been so important. And um, we talked a bit about marketing earlier, but I do think that, you know, marketing is marketing. But when a client says something, it's just, you know, a hundred times more impactful than anything you, you say yourself. 100% agree. Now, final couple of questions here for you. So one thing that I see a lot in U.S. media, and I'm sure it happens there, is entrepreneurship and, and being a founder is, is really glamorized. And it, it looks so cool and, and exciting and, and fun. But the reality is being a founder, being a tech founder is hard. And there's a lot of painful moments that come along the way. Can you talk us through a painful moment that you've experienced so far in building the company? And then just talk us through how you navigated that low point and how you navigated that to, to continue to build the business. I just said that we have really high customer satisfaction, but I die a bit every time a client is dissatisfied. <laughs> and, you know, at this scale, there's things just happen. Not everyone is super happy all the time. And it just hurts like hell every time still. You never get used to it. You always feel embarrassed. You feel ashamed. You feel like you committed to something and didn't deliver. So that's kind of an ongoing thing. We, of course, need to learn from every mistake and do better. But that's really, I think, still the most painful thing that can happen. Then, you know... Big moments, I think one big moment was when the pandemic hit. It looked, of course, a bit different in different parts of the world. But for example, here in Helsinki, we had uh, fairly strict lockdowns. And then um, we saw that, that, you know, a lot of different countries in the world were going into lockdown. It was a very stressful moment because nobody knew what would happen next. So we had to create scenarios. And one scenario was actually that we wouldn't sell anything for at least the rest of the year. And um, a certain proportion of our clients would go bankrupt. So cease to pay us. And then we kind of calculated back on uh, how much we need to do cost cuttings to be able to make it through the year without selling anything potentially and not be forced to raise money in a very kind of uncertain financial market. So it turns out that, you know, a couple of months in, you know, business was slower, but then it started to pick up. And then towards the end of the year, we saw huge demand because the pandemic also showed how vulnerable supply chains are if you don't have good control of the planning. So it kind of had a bit of a ketchup effect. The bottle opened. But yeah, it was a, it was a scary moment. We also managed to keep our heads cool and uh, make some tough 
cost-cutting decisions early on, which made it possible for us to actually not need to do all that much in the end, because, um, yeah, the worst case scenario never realized. Yeah, it's so wild that yeah everyone was dealing with that, right? On a personal level and just a business level. I remember those days you know, early on in the pandemic where it was just the, the craziest feeling of the unknown and uncertainty of what does this all mean? What's going to happen? And I did have some peace of mind, at least personally, knowing that every other business was dealing with the same thing. You know, nobody had any level of certainty about what was going to happen, how this was going to play out. The whole world was in this state of shock and a a state of uncertainty. So I feel like that helped a little bit knowing that everyone was dealing with the same exact thing that I was dealing with. So I'm I'm guessing it was probably something similar for you, right? You weren't alone in these feelings and alone in this, uh, this pain and challenge. Yeah, and something that actually was very helpful during the pandemic from a personal perspective was that we could see that we were actually helping societies. And now this sounds very like big and bold, but, you know, we work a lot with, for example, grocery supply chains and pharmaceutical supply chains that are very, very important to societies. And we saw that we could help companies secure availability of of these like essential goods using our systems. So, for example, quickly switching between suppliers based on who had availability or routing products different ways or, you know, there was a ton of things that our clients were able to do. So I also felt quite proud, you know, doing my work and being able to contribute in this like super messy situation. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, final question for you. I know we're up on time here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's next? What are the next three to five years going to look like? Process optimization in general, you know, all types of processes is kind of a gift that keeps on giving. So if you've managed to, let's say, lift a client to a certain level of process maturity, there's always more you can do with richer data and more accurate data and and just kind of expanding the scope within their operations. So for many clients, this is a journey where we will kind of take several steps before we reach some level of perfection. But there's also room to broaden our offering portfolio. So for example, uh, last year we added promotion optimization. So basically, well, first cutting poorly performing promotions. There's surprisingly many promotions that actually don't contribute financially or or from a demand generation perspective, but still manage to mess up the supply chain. And then, you know, finding the right products to promote with the right mechanics and so on. But there's still a lot of other planning processes that are, in my view, in dire need of improvement. So we'll be bringing new solutions to market, but I can't reveal just yet what we're bringing. And then there's the other part, so the supply chain. So as mentioned, the pandemic really kind of put supply chains in the spotlight and made it visible how interconnected and global supply chains are nowadays and how hard they are to manage if every company works in their own silo. So I do think that, you know, increasing information sharing and collaboration in in supply chains is something that will 
finally happened now <laughs> that we've been scared into really having to do it. Amazing. Well, we'll have to bring you on for part two and do another interview to dive deeper into that whenever you're you're ready to talk about it more. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. If there's any founders that are listening to this show and, and they just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Well, everything about Relax is, of course, available on relaxsolutions.com. If you you know want to track what's new, what's going on, then uh, find myself or Relax Solutions on LinkedIn. And then if you're more into, let's say, office dogs and what's it like to work at Relax, you may also want to check out Life at Relax on Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been so much fun. I've learned a lot from you and I know the audience is going to learn a lot from you as well. And I, I can't wait to get this out into the world. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. All right, keep in touch.